<clears throat> so we have some questions here. Thank you. I sympathise. So interesting, some interesting points here. One of the few Buddhist teachers I've heard talk about basic human needs and their importance, safety, security, love. I find this refreshing and reassuring. Can you comment on if or how these needs can be a manifestation of bhava tanha? What is the difference between such needs and tanha? Are they sometimes more pure or unaffected by tanna upadana, tanna craving, upadana clinging. Mm. Well, mm, yeah. so just as sort of well, as a really like foundational background thing. First of all, you know, all the all the Buddha's dharma really is about the presentation of necessary conditions. You know that some conditions are necessary, uh, things only occur when you really understand or get some insights into conditionality and that right view. It means every everything that appears to be a thing is actually a coming together of causes and conditions. There's no such thing as a thing. <laughs> In other words, they're all just assemblies of, of causes and conditions. So we can recognize we all needed a, you know, we came from a sperm and an ovum originally. You know, if they didn't happen, or the goodwill in the world, we wouldn't have been here. <laughs> so, so there's a necessary conditions, and, and of course, you, know, you look in these uh, Buddhist scriptures; they're all lists of the required need, uh, conditions which are necessary, you know, on all kinds of levels. Um, sometimes very simple lists, sometimes quite complex lists. And there are certain conditions which, if you assemble them, they inevitably will must generate suffering, <laughs> whether you want them to or not. <laughs> if certain conditions are in place, such as craving and clinging and bawa uh, uh, becoming, then there's no way that cannot do anything but generate suffering. It might you might be mingled, mixed up with other things, but that's where it's going. Yeah. And if those are eliminated, if the conditions do not pertain, then you don't. That's just the way it is. It's like that. There's no negotiation on that. Hmm. And so, you know, these are when you really understand this and really look at everything like that, you know, because we tend to see things very much in terms of finite or separate entities. Like this exists as some finite, or I exist as some finite thing in time and space. Well, no. <laughs> you know, if you it's, it's constantly shifting and changing. The sense of identity is constantly shifting and changing, dependent upon causes and conditions. And if you put certain conditions in, inevitably it leads to this. So it runs right through. You know, from right from that. We say the meditative level to the in Buddha Dhamma to the social level, you know. So it said if you don't have um, some guidance, spiritual friend or and deep attention, you don't get there. It's not nothing your your fault, it's just that it hasn't got it hasn't arrived. For a for a summoner, a monk or a nun, if you don't have Sila, morality, conscience and concern, deep sense of concern for how you affect others and conscience to really be as sincere. Then You're not really there, you're not a monk, you're just a person wearing robes. And it doesn't mean, you know, you even could be an ace meditator, but without those basic conditions, how can you be an arms mendicant? If you're not like that, how can you dare to accept arms? So these are necessary condition. Yeah, otherwise you, it's not there. Yeah. Same, you know, you look at in monastic life, you know, teacher, you need to have, to have any kind of 
sense of that, you have to some someone you respect, conscientious towards. You know, you want to really act with integrity towards them. You have affection for them, and you're prepared to commit. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It just, it's just, it all falls apart. It's not anybody's. It's not subject to personality. If that can't happen, you don't have it. It doesn't work. So you know what? What is? So this is needs. You know, if those determinant conditions aren't there, it doesn't happen. You know, so human bodies need this. They need food. They need water. And they need air. Uh, uh, right. Otherwise, they don't happen. They fall apart. <laughs> so these are all. You know, we, we can recognise that it's all conditioned. Now there are conditions that are pertinent for liberation. If you don't have them, it doesn't work. So we might say, you know, the Buddha's presenting all these lists, you know, and they're kind of different ways of addressing the similar features. So just one has to have some sense of aspiration. You don't just sit there and wait for it to happen. Some sense of application. Some ability to have the wisdom and the framing up of what's going on and ability to collect so that you can consciously, clearly review. You know, otherwise, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> now, you know, we have to say basic, what's a human? Human need? Well, a human, what's a human? <laughs> you know, a human body requires certain things. We talk about what's a human being. Well, I suppose what we're looking at is some uh, sense of a, uh, looking here perhaps at a psychological quality. You know, what's necessary to be a, a clearly functioning mind state. You know? I think this is what's being requ- mentioned here. Well, if there isn't that sense of safety, then you're always dealing with fear. How can you be clear and conscious and functioning properly if you're always having to be crippled by that anxiety, fear. So, yeah. And recognize this is certainly something we're prone to. The fear of getting it wrong, the fear of blame, the fear of being rejected, the fear of being directly attacked. We live with a lot of that. And in highly performance-driven societies, that fear is, is deeply ingrained. Because if you don't come up with the goods, you know, you ain't there. <laughs> And those goods could be completely notional, like intelligence, good appearance. You know, and if you don't make that, then sorry, you're not getting the the goods. So we we fear that so much so that fear affects our judgment. We're living haunted by shadows. How can you be a clearly functioning, conscious human being if you're doing that? You can be a kind of half half there, you know, slightly crippled or slightly burdened, but that's not going to help you anyway, is it? Right. So there is a need for that, what I'm calling safety, security, I would say perhaps love is another way of putting it. <coughs> and of course, word like love, so so popular and so, I think, travestied and, and, and um, trivialized or made into sort of soap opera stuff. Well, you know, basically to my, my sense of fundamental thing is Here's a place you can sit down. No deal. No need. That's that's an offering. You know, that's pretty. To me, that's that's the fundamental thing. That you feel there's that sense of there's no no judgments here. There's no gradations. There's no credits. There doesn't. You know, you're just there. And as a being, not as a doing, your actions are subject to, you know, you know being questioned. But as a being. If you can't have this fundamental sense of that being here in the world, I'm fundamentally okay, <laughs> safe, then you're always going to be dodging shadows and fearing them. And um, I, I say, that's not, you may crave them, of course, you may crave uh, acceptance and so forth, but then you generally, craving is always to do with, with, with fantasy projections. How do you know they're fantasies? Because, because you never get them. You never find, you never get. You think you're about to get it, but it doesn't happen. You think maybe having, a, you know, a, 
a house with guards and security around it to make me feel safe. It doesn't. You're still worried somebody might get in, or you're not. You know, somebody might poison you, or somebody, one of your members of your family might, have a, you know, rip you off or something. <laughs> if you're wealthy, so it doesn't. You don't get that security through those things. You may feel well, this person, you know, will, will provide me with all the love I need, but then, you know. How many times you kind of go for that, and then you realize no, it doesn't work like that. It's not something that. It's something that occurs through, something that's not really about yourself. It's just it's more fundamental than that. It's not about your personality or your skills or your wealth or your looks. It's something much more fundamental than that. That. You know, you don't have to approve. You say whatever. You there's a sense of being able to be here without fear, without that fundamental quality. Because if there is that, then we're always agitated and active, and that's actually a cause for tanha. If that if that need isn't addressed, then then there's the tanha for something that will make me feel okay. And there's that reaching out. Yeah, and that maybe this, maybe that, maybe him, maybe her, maybe them, maybe that. And it's always what are we looking for? Something out that we don't have yet, that we could get. And you know, when whenever that occurs, what happens? You know, there's this reaching out and clutching hold of something that fails, doesn't get it, doesn't do it. Just contemplate it for yourself. And look at what Tanha presents. Something where uh, we feel energy rushing out into a dream, into a possibility, into a theory into an image, into a glowing something, purely concocted by the mind. Now, you know, deep safety is not concocted. That's why it's so safe, that's why it's so deep. And one of the epithets for Nibbana is the safe, the kema. This is the really safe, you know. When the, the, the tanha and the fear and the aversion and the all that stops. So this is this is a fundamental need, and in meditation, I would say that it has to be recognised because um, you know a lot of people find themselves not accessing that. They're always trying to hold themselves up by pleasing others or by coming up with the proper statistics or the proper grades or the proper credentials to make feel then they'll be okay and of course driven, 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 driven and we're going the wrong way going the wrong way because anything that's created anything that's created must fall apart, mustn't it? That's also the nature of things, very fundamental. If, you, if it's brought together, then sooner or later it's going to, like this body, it's going to break up. So where's the safety in that? So anything that our mind concocts is of the same nature. You know, you concoct it, hold it together with hope, desperation, willpower, whatever. But when that starts to slack, it's going to fall apart again. <laughs> so where's the safety in that? Yeah. The Buddha, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting st- poem, stanza when the Buddha is being addressed by a devata saying, well, where, does, where do you find safety in this world? And the Buddha, oh, this is <laughs> a bit strange, you know, <laughs> a bit too straight sometimes. <laughs> it is. Not apart from 
enlightenment, not apart from sense restraint, not apart from abandoning all, <laughs> do I see safety for beings in this world. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Abandoning all, what was it all? Abandon, abandon the eye, abandon contact, abandon things that you're reaching out for. <laughs> Have that gesture of releasing. Without that, you're not safe. <laughs> That's what he's saying. It's very pithy. Uh, uh, he's saying if you don't know how to abandon things that are not yours, that you can't have, that are conditioned and caused and created, if you don't know how to release them, then you're not safe. Yeah, you're always holding on to things that are going to break up. So that's that's the need, really. And so we say, well, where is the funda- most fundamental safety? And maybe we say, well, you know, maybe it's not absolutely 100% eternal safety, but it's it's good enough for now, you know, and it feels a lot safer than me trying to make things happen. And so we just, this is what I call ground, ground being, you know, and then from there you can begin to, you've got a place where you can, oh, here's the, you know, the feeling of mistrust, or the feeling of wanting, or the feeling of how am I, or the feeling of the energy of trying to make something happen. Just, just don't need that now. You don't need that now. Who said you needed that? What is it that says you need that now? Just drink in fundamental safety. And then from there, when your mind is clearer of these twitches and urges, you can begin to sense, well, you know, if I want to, if it would be supportive to generate, you know, some bit more goodwill or something, there are causes, causes and conditions to put together for that. Yeah. So that, you know, there can be a healing of this personhood. And the conditions we can, we can bring around. And one of those ongoing things is that quality, I sort of fundamental love, which is complete acceptance into being present, well, then we start to say, well, that, that quality can be, you know, made m- m- attuned to, well, I can at least be non-abusive to myself and others. I can do that. I can stop, you know, criticizing, my, or I can at least try to stop criticizing myself and others. And what enables me to do that? If I keep doing that all the time, Criticizing myself and others, well, you know, what's the, where's that going to go? <laughs> you know, so there's that, that, and they think that something, and also just to recognize that, you know, a quality of, of what, what this love, in a sense, is there's something beautiful here to be carefully looked after protected, you know, allowed to grow, something precious here, what are you alive for? You know, if there's nothing worthwhile in it, what's the point? Just going through another day. If there's no sense of something valuable here that needs to be carefully attended to, and that's my job, (laughs) most fundamentally, because otherwise, if I don't do that, everything's going to go crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So there's that, that need. There's no, need, there's no self-respect. If there's no tolerance and leniency and good humour, then how are you going to function, let alone get enlightened? So this, um, this is, just, I say, it's a very basic need. Now, this has nothing to do with fantasies, because it means you've got to really look closely and examine, and is that true? Is that thing actually valid or not? No, it's not. It goes, it takes me to rock, unskillful place. I know it feels unskillful. It's not an idea. I can feel it <laughs> hurting me. <laughs> you know, twisting me up. So stop doing that. You know. I mean, of course, you can't just do it like that. But you recognise there is a need for that to cease because it's an obstructive condition. And I'll work on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, so that's not a, that's not just blind craving, but it does require 
Another quality called um, chanda, motivation, which is desire, and it can be skillful or unskillful, but dharma chanda is a, is a desire, a thirst, an interest, a motivation to, you know, do some stuff, do some work. And without that, nothing works either. So, you know, some kind of desire is necessary. But it's desire that's the motivation to, to see and know directly as it is. Not the pathological and reactionary generation of fantasies, which some of, some of them are really not even very nice fantasies. Of, you know, what a stupid, rotten person I am, or something like that. And it's the thing about Tanha, Bawa Tanha. It doesn't really care what it creates, as long as it creates something. It can create you as a complete basket case, and that's that's fine. It rubs its hands. I've done a good job. Signed her off, you know. <laughs> Got a nice, solid person there. <laughs> doesn't matter if, if it's a miserable person, because it's a person. <laughs> that's Bawatana's job. So, you know, Bawatana is not always creating glamorous self-images, by any means, it's just the fundamental need or this fundamental craving to generate something solid that isn't solid. And we weld conditions, psychological conditions, some of them deeply afflictive, doesn't matter, stick it all together, then you got James or Susan or whatever, you know, and you go around holding it all together and trying to you know, then, then that's that's Bawatana's job. Our job is to see with all this, you know, there is this afflictiveness, there is this compulsiveness, there's this um, wackiness, it's neurotic, but basically I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit jealous, spiteful, grumpy, but my heart's in the right place. I just need to kind of clear a bit of the... Of the <laughs> Damage, you know, the derelict bits. And, you know, in there there's something beautiful. So it's very important to recognize, even with hindrances, you say it's not, you know, I'm a stupid, sick, twisted up person, but I am a being who this has landed on, you know, and I respect that being. And it's like so, the images of a, a fine, handsome man or a beautiful woman wearing a, having a dead dog around their neck or a snake. A dead snake or something saying, oh, that's not worthy of you. Take it off. Whereas the Bhavatana thinks you are the dead dog <laughs> rather than something you're wearing, stuck with. So that, that need for the also for the you know, the compassion and that basic love which is self respect in order to just get perspective. On, on these, on what's happening here. There is a skillful basis, being a human being, but definitely there are afflictions. And we need to have, first of all, that grounding and, and foundation in the basic dignity and self-respect to be able to discern, this is not worthy of me, I don't, this is foolish, this is taking me to a bad place, abandon it, put it aside. Without that gift, without that, you know, acknowledgement of fundamental quality, you might say, then we really haven't got what it takes to um, to clear. There's no basis for clearing. Because we're just always busy tangling ourselves up and fighting with our own shadows. Well, maybe that helps somewhat. Mm. In our interview, you spoke about how rarely people meet in genuine mutuality. Could you define or unpack mutuality? Mm. Mm. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's. Mm. Well, it's again, it's part of the understanding of what um, what is coming, what is happening any time in um, you know in, in experiences of coming together of conditions, and so 
again, look at it very basically, fundamentally, you know, the Dhamma is, its, its foundation is mutuality, so it starts with generosity, means I give to another person, they share, we share, that's considered, you know, ground level, basic Dhamma, uh, Dhana, Sila means I don't do to others what I don't want them to do to me, I you know, I may not like you, but I respect, and I'm not going to... So there's a sense of mutuality, isn't there? Conscience and concern is, is, you know, my welfare, your welfare matter. Kindness, you know, is the other side of morality, isn't it? It means to others as to myself, you know, a sense of tolerance, openness, non-abusiveness. So, you know, that's, that's the foundation of it before we even refine anything further. And again, looking at it very basically, again, when we understand conditions, conditionality, everything arises from a plurality of dhammas coming together, mutual support conditions. Now, in terms of human interactions, uh, you, know, uh, you can't really have a, 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 a fruitful interaction unless there's some sense of both people are or, you know, two or three or whatever, are equally able to put what they are about or their view or what's happening for them to present it to the other so that there can be some sense of a skillful um, response, or a skillful understanding. We don't understand each other unless we're able to do that. So for that, it means somebody has to listen, somebody talks, somebody listens. We inquire, how's that, you know? To make sure that we're actually getting it right, and that in that in that experience, there's a sense of trust. This person is actually interested in knowing what's happening, and is prepared to share their attention and their kindness with another. Then, naturally, that that's going to um, result in fruitful understanding and clarity and harmony. Mm. Now. When in a, in when we have a situation where there's more competition, then the mutuality begin, naturally is at risk, <laughs> put it mildly, because with competition, uh, you know, mutuality is not the aim. The aim is um, individuality. Uh, so the degree to which comp- competitive values uh, uh, take over our attention then mutuality wanes and competition can be in obvious things such as sport or business or something like that but also it can be kind of competition who's smartest who's uh, you know who's higher lower hierarchy you know these aren't just conventional everything is hierarchical there's people i'm better i'm let you know so those things if those things are, are, are sustained and then then again there's a drop in the mutuality a lessening of mutuality mm. so any sense of 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 of, of com, com, you know if conceit for example like i am this she is that that will also limit mutuality And this means uh, uh, there has to be uh, enough trust between people uh, recognizing we are afflicted, we are subject to these pressures, we have been, you know, indoctrinated into highly self-conscious ways in which we uh, feel quite perhaps nervous from others or feeling of lesser than others or better than others then we have to recognize that perhaps you know, a sense of mutuality is, is afflicted. We're frightened, we're not listening, we're inattentive. Therefore, you know, to... And that, that actually is for not just damages the relationship, it also damages ourselves, because if I'm still stuck in a situation where, you know, I'm domineering, arrogant, inattentive, don't care for others, only want my own way, Ooh, if I'm stuck in that, it's not going to do me any good, is it? So I really want to be in a place where, when anything like that happens, I want somebody to be able to tell me it. 
so that I can, you know, oh, thanks, you know, right. So that I can get clear of it. I can't always see that. You know, when you're, you're sitting in your own stuff, you can't always see it. So you need other people to be able to point it out. And generally, you kind of want it, but also you don't want it. <laughs> you know, you feel blamed or cursed, or now he despises me. You know, he's seen what a so forth. And uh, that's why in, 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 in the Buddha re- recommended, you, he said, you know, you cannot, you have to be able to receive that. He says, and he said, he put it very strongly, he said, if you don't receive that, you're dead. As, as a monk, he said, then we consider this death. If people no longer consider you capable of being talked to, we consider this death in this Dharma and discipline. You know, he's a way of putting these things very strongly. Because how else are you going to see? How else are you going to know? Unless somebody tells you. <laughs> but there could be such nervousness and, 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 and fear of getting it wrong, because if you get it wrong, you're going to be blamed and ridiculed, rather than, oh, I'm so, you know, rather than, oh, you know, I want to help you. I, I see this thing is, 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 is dragging you down, you know, out of compassion. And so I said, you know, Procedures you have to be able to address people with kindness and compassion and speak gently and speak at the right time, the right place. Otherwise, they're just going to get defensive. So, therefore, for our own progress, for our welfare of others, for ourselves, we have to cultivate a mutuality that really sees past the difficult pieces or trusts that past the difficult pieces, past the ignorant pieces, past the compulsive pieces, there's a genuine, valuable presence in there called a chitta. And you want to look at that and remember that and say to that chitta, look, these things are are, are weighing you down, you know, I'm concerned for your welfare. And so there's this, that takes, you know, and to establish that kind of uh, way which Buddha regards as essential, we have to recognize, we have to enter in, into some sort of mutuality which isn't riddled with fear and competition. Who's going who's to lord it over somebody else? Who's going to prove, who's going to put somebody else down? Or, you know, who's, who's, how can we be for the welfare of each other? By, you know, it's nice to have some praise, but really, you know, it doesn't go that far, actually. <laughs> what really helps is someone says, oh, this thing you're doing, actually, do you see that? What? That? What do you mean? <laughs> well, like this and this and that. Oh, you don't need to do that. Oh, because you don't know. You know, as a person, you don't know. So you have to have mutuality for that. And it is, less, it is missing. I think one of the most, uh, you know, sort of rather you know, awkward retreats I taught was why is it a session on right speech? And for this I had to people just to, in couples, just to sit and say, okay, you, you, you talk to him, you know, just say, talk for five minutes about what you've been doing, you know for the last month or so. Oh, I went on holiday, you know, I saw my Uncle George, and we went to Portugal, and had a nice time, and then Susie got sick, so I came home, and, you know, and then, okay, now you repeat what she said. Um, oh, um, she said she was working hard, and her Aunt Sally got sick, so she went home because her dog was, <laughs> didn't actually hear it. And the funny thing is, some of these people are actually in couple relationships. <laughs> I think that just that ended it. <laughs> and actually listened. Didn't know how to listen. Just, oh, she's batting on about something or the other. <laughs> just tell her it's all right. You know, I think, wow. <laughs> so who listens? You know, is it just sets of monologues bouncing through the air? <laughs> and these are just, you know, Obviously, well-intentioned people, but the, the dysfunctionality and that. So this, is, you think, why is that? These are good people. 
you know. It's just, uh, it's also self-conscious. So self-conscious, so self-oriented. Mm. You know, I was talking to some people, teachers in South Africa, and they say, well, you know, I had a bunch of kids, you know, nine years old, and they had some sort of little game, and, uh, and some candies, you know, they, some kid, to get all the right answers, they gave him a bag of candies, you know, there was ten kids. He looked at his bag of candies, oh, oh, he felt, and he said, he had to hand them out to everybody. And he said, well, because if I didn't, they'd be unhappy. And if they're unhappy, I'd be unhappy. You know, this was just basic logic, you know, rather than, oh, i got mine, oh, you know, stuff you guys. <laughs> so this is, uh, you know, and how happy we are when there is mutuality. How relaxed we are, how relieved we are when there's mutuality, and how it's quite natural. But this intense self-consciousness, fear of blame, fear of each other, fear of getting it wrong, is just uh, cripples people. Mm. So I think it's, it's a real, real need. Mm. Thank you. All right, lovely. That's an example of it. <laughs> you know, it's, it, one can go on, but I, I just touch into that because there's a few others. Um, practicing with the awareness of the impersonality of karma is a very rich vein of investigation. Important aspect of right view. Can you kind of share some of your thoughts and ideas around this practice? Well. Yeah, well, I, to be honest, it's actually the Buddha's thoughts <coughs> that I can, you know, put through my own um, brain or way of speaking. Mm-hmm. <coughs> mm. That uh, essentially, <coughs> karma, um, action, um, particularly the action, psychological action, the action of our, oh, we say, our intentions or our kind of drives. What, what we, what those actions bring into being for us, for good or for bad, that's, that's called karma, and that lays down results. Yeah. And um, there's also the, an inheritance of previous results. So there's a citta, and the citta is in this karmic field, we might say. I think the Buddha even used that expression, karma, as a field. It means there's a whole field or domain of effects, some of them long term, some of them short term. We could be uh, could be this jitter could be experiencing results of what you know so and so said to me yesterday, or they could be experienced results of what I did five years ago. So some are long term, some are short term, some are immediately fruit it, coming to fruition, some take a while to attain fruition. You know, so you know, an evil person can feel quite happy for a while getting what they're doing their stuff. But it's until maybe years later where they begin to experience the results of that. So this is just an impersonal process. It's just that you can see it's a law. It's called one of the one of the niyamas or fundamental laws of 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 existence. That intentional actions give rise to results. So there's no personal deal in that. Uh. <clears throat> now these intentional actions, uh, as we, we say our own intentional actions, give rise to results. Also the actions uh, of others that were in this karmic field uh, can give rise to effects. We feel there's a touching and affected sense. We're affected by the praise or the blame of others. We interpret that, and then there's a particular seizing of that that message, and that uh, is also karma, psychological karma, mental karma, that one that something in the mind grasps onto a particular impression, is fascinated by it, holds it, and starts to spin with it. So you know, 
been quite a nice day and then somebody looked at you in a strange way and you felt they don't like me and your mind seized on that. Now, that there's an action there and it gives rise to results. Now, why that happened was because in previous times that same sort of message got sent and you experienced pain of some kind. So we're often bouncing off or reduplicating old karmic messages. Jitta moves through karma, or karma moves through the jitta, or the jitta's main trajectory or progress or or whatever, it moves through the field of karma. This is why we can still be experiencing and reduplicating results of events that happened years ago. Hmm. Now the... Why it's important to recognize that the karma creates the person and intention uh, means that there's a possibility of liberation because if those causes and conditions are not activated or are seen through or are released or are modified, there is a change. Yeah. So we, in a way we have to enter not into the how do I get to be a better person, how do I get to be a happier person, but what are the causes and conditions that generate unhappiness? And that has to be very honest and basic and no sense of personal attribution to it. Yeah. And then how could those conditions be abandoned? And you know, the person can't directly abandon them, but we can enter into a Dhamma, into a process where conditions lead to their abandonment. This is called the karma that leads to the end of karma, action that leads to the resolution of past actions. So it's important to investigate these uh, (coughs) effects. And naturally there's a whole web and weave of them. We can imagine the amount of psychological clicking and and switching on that's happened in our lives, there seems to be a huge amount of it, we could say. And you look at that and think, gee, you know, it's like, wow, mountains, how do you get through that? Well, mm, uh, I think the Buddha said, if you had to resolve all your past karma, you'd be here forever. But... There's one important thing to to resolve <laughs> is the the continuing to regenerate it. <laughs> that is, I do feel some fear, but I'm not acting on it. I do feel some this sense of whatever, you know, but I'm not acting on it. I can understand that. Uh huh. It's an energy that happens. It's a response. It's a reaction. It's a sankara arising. I can sense it arising. Yeah. I can be with that. I can step back from it. I can see it with dispassion. I can feel it in my body. I can open and widen. That thing can then move through. It doesn't have to be seized. Therefore, it loses its same compulsive power. Every time we don't clench or are able to stop the mind contracting, every time we do that, we weaken that. And that's this, that's the peace. That's it. And it's not so, you know. And it's also the case that, that one indeed, this, this being may be subject to those same kind of sensitivities. You know, same senses of t- prone to experiencing trembles of ill will but they don't act upon them. So in a way they're still inherited some of those karmic heap. So it's not a matter of cleaning it all out, but of not being activated so that we park our old karma arises, we can, can, we can begin to discern it. Then this skillful karma of pausing, handling, Mindful, you know, what it takes to, to not react to that, to, to let it move through, and to also trace where it goes to the ceasing of that, to it fades, not because you've repressed it, 
because it's just found a new way instead of going back into that old labyrinth of self. It goes to, it's, it just goes out, you know. Right? It goes to release. This is called abandoning, ceasing. And it's the case, you know, I would say that, you know, the general understanding in, in the Buddhist world is you, you can't, you know, you're still going to be a particular person with certain idiosyncrasies, you know. And every being you've ever met who seems to be somewhat realized is still definitely a, a something there, you know. But, you know, if they are realized they're also modest, they don't take themselves seriously. They're able to, okay, yeah, that was just me, just my stuff, you know, the way I am built, and, you know, I'm not going to act upon it. So it's the, that's the piece. The, you know, that, that grasping and tenacious holding on. Now that, then that's very, that's practical and doable. No, so, you know, what does that mean? Essentially that, sure, you know, there's all these tendencies and uh, seeing through that and pick, being a not, we can't just be passive to it. it, means you have to clearly pick up particular karma, particular intentions, particular activities to that relate to your your apparent self in all its peculiarities to the, to the patterns there yeah, to because that's what that's that's the path of release it's not through going somewhere else it's in this very heap <laughs> that the way out it can be realized that's you know you think well thank goodness you don't have to be a saint first of all <laughs> Just keep me too long, but another one. Many teachers of samadhi I've encountered have stressed the importance of continuity of practice, i.e., keeping the object, e.g., the breath, in mind while walking, eating, etc. I don't think they required it for sleeping. Your approach doesn't seem to require this. Is that right? Well. I guess it depends what you mean by practice, it depends what you mean by object, it depends what you mean by mind. But apart from that, we're basically in agreement. (laughs) 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 So, I generally, I think it's important to keep the Dhamma in mind, (laughs) to keep one's uh, virtues in mind, one's one's precepts in mind, and to keep one's... uh, uh, attentiveness in mind and uh, so forth so you know practice i think we can you can narrow it down to too much perhaps and um, yeah you know so for samadhi keeping a single object in mind well again you know if you one point attention on your nostrils may be indeed um, helpful at certain periods of time but if you're trying to handle a eating a bowl of noodles and you're stuck in your nose, it's not going to be a very <laughs> pleasant, agreeable experience, is it? <laughs> so you've got to realise there's got to be a bit of leeway on that one. <laughs> so I would generally recommend, well, what you can do most of the time, perhaps, and this is, even this is quite a big ask, <laughs> is just to be aware of your body. <laughs> Uh, that that's you know that gives you some room, but you know when you walk, sleep, eat, lie down, go to the bathroom, whatever, you try to be aware of your body. Then then you know you're not going to. There's some sense you can do it, and and essentially that will be your basic ground, and then occasions when you can actually refine that. To but if you stay with that, then you're not going to leave the basic ground, and the Buddha. Said, you know, if you keep these foundations of mindfulness in, in place, you'll be safe from Mara. If you don't, you're not. You know, so 
body, the first one. Can't bear it in mind because you can do it. And then as you sit, what kind of body's there? Well, switch off the sense contact. Yeah, there's a, there's a textures, there's a breathing body. Then it it's, it it segues quite nicely, and every time you do that, yeah, then you can heighten your samadhi practice, and do remember to spread it everywhere, to integrate it into your body, so your body becomes more fresh, relaxed, you're more comfortable with it. Then you're going to be in it more deeply and more fully, more of the time, and so you know the, the gradations of that. And I do rec- recommend that. <coughs> Dear Ajahn, what do you mean by fun? <laughs> In our first interview, you asked me if I did anything for fun. <laughs> As my practice has developed... What I would have considered fun, activities, travel, theatre, dancing, dinner parties have pretty much dropped away. Are not where I feel inclined to direct my energy. There are activities that create a sense of joy, of intimate connection, of calm and openness, but not, I think, fun. Is it time to bring out those dancing shoes? (laughs) It, It could be. So what is fun anyway? Yeah. What is play? Means that we're not hung up too much about our self-image. We're not hung up too much about results. We're feeling light and tolerant. We're something intuitive, momentary. Yeah, that's fun. Uh, that's the best way to meditate. If you're hung up about results, it's going to get tight. If you're hung up about self-image, you can get too serious. And then everything's going to seize up. It's going to get too fraught. Getting it right, getting it wrong, not being able to practice. And, uh, you know, there can be an incredible accuracy in play if you really develop it. Just sensitivity of of a ballerina or a gymnast, you know. They're playing, but it's, you know, it requires profound attention. Mm. So there are, it means what you mean by fun, but essentially there's a quality of uh, lightness, pliability, malleability, openness, warmth, and enjoyment. And those are necessary, I would say, for fruitions and it's so fun it's not not actually a trivial matter at all in this sense to enjoy it to allow yourself to enjoy the skills the goodness that you have and to make much of it and to be able to just well let's see where this goes you know let's work with this it doesn't have to necessarily you know, get too worried about it uh, and not have to create some impeccable self-image. Again, one of the features of, you know, most of the, any of the beings who are considered to have realizations, they have fun. You know, you look at Dalai Lama, he's not dead stick, is he? He's generally cheerful, joking. Ajahn Chah, really playful, teasing people. Yeah. And, you know, really warm. And, yeah, they're all like that in different ways. There's something very attractive about that, uh, that quality. Uh, but at the same time, they know what they're doing. They're not unconscientious. They're not transgressing boundaries. They're not careless. But there's the enjoyment of handling these experiences, our experiences of sankaras with a sense of lightness and kindness and compassion. That's the fun of Dhamma. Okay, last one.
When you describe energy in meditation going down the spine, etc., what do you mean by energy? Mm. <clears throat> well, <laughs> energy. It's to say the life force that we experience is has a vitality to it. Otherwise, we'd be dead. So life, the life force has vitality. Uh, it surges. It trembles. It rushes. It. So even when it's st- relatively still, it's still got a kind of radiant quality to it. Life is actually dynamic, energetic. It doesn't mean it's necessarily, you know, rushing around, but it's always dynamic. Heart has energy, blood is circulated, things are moving. What is it that gets them moving? Energy. What's the fundamental unit of the universe? Energy, you know. Matter is a, is an illusion. They're just fields of energy that that in some respects look like matter. So energy is the essential uh, basic building brick, if you like, or the fundamental nature of, of existence is energy. Now that, that occurs in all, all respects, from the subtle to the gross. And much as energy is not something that we necessarily realize as energy because we're not doing it. It's not the energy of doing, but it's the energy of existence, of being. And this is warming our bodies. Hmm? And this is getting our heart going. And this is getting our breath going. And this is getting our ability to think going. And this is getting our emotions going. So it's a manifold weave of energies. In, uh, in spiritual practices or in yogic practices particularly or things of that nature there's the ability to discern subtler body energies not just the energies of doing but the energies of being uh, energies that run through our fibers the energies that run through our nerve endings and as one becomes more clear and discerning you can you can begin to track these and their effects and um you know, people who who look into this and to the degree to which I've kind of contemplated or examined this, there's a profound a profound energy, fundamental energy channels. So the spine is one of them. And um, heart is another one. Big energy coming out of the heart. And so the body radiates energy as it lives in an its physical form is a is a just a physical accumulation within a field of body energy, bodily energy, and so this is just a, something you can bear in mind as a as a map anyway, because it helps to perhaps um, make you remember why your body sometimes feels very small or tense or compacted when it's actually exactly the same size. <laughs> And when it feels loose and open and expansive, when it's exactly the same size, and sometimes you feel very small when it actually hasn't changed at all, and sometimes you feel like you're in bits and pieces, your arms are off somewhere else, or your legs disappear, what's happening? Physically it's exactly the same. But energetically it's either expansive or contracted or broken or dissociated or frozen or locked. You know, that's why. That's how you experience it. Some people experience yourself all up in your head. No, it's exactly, nobody up there. But the energy's gone up there. When we feel angry, it rushes through certain channels and we feel flaring and, you know, pounding and stuff like that. When we feel depressed, it sinks. If you're happy and free, our heart opens. We feel the energy there. It's exactly the same physical shape. So these are body energies. They're, some of them are very obvious. Some of them take a bit of practice to discern and so this is what I'm referring to yeah. Yeah. and if you don't feel it don't worry about it you know it's not something you've got to get but just uh, the, if one is in some sort of quiet calm state you may in fact benefit from just acknowledging that and feeling what is it that keeps you balanced energy is intelligent it doesn't think, but it's sensitive. 
it's, it's affected by things. It contracts. It flares out. It expands. It qualms. It radiates. It's not, it's not inert. It's very affected. And, uh, yeah, so it's to be carefully sensed and cultivated. Fundamentally, where it's blocked or frozen, trapped, where your body feels like it's totally imbalanced, that's what you want to work on by bringing your awareness to the entirety of your form and finding some means in which you can spread or radiate at least a kindly opening quality of mind through that because body energy is very responsive to heart energy. The two are interwoven. If we attend this body with a kindly and compassionate and spreading quality, the body definitely calms down. Then you don't have to concern yourself too much about the refined details of these things, but they may come into place. So thank you for your questions. I think that's enough for this evening.